2: Crop diversity is at risk, and there are some just extraordinary people out there working to, in a way, save the world. This is an absolutely remarkable story. Barry Bonglem is with us, technical specialist with the Global Crop Diversity Trust, based out of Bonn, Germany. Croptrust.org is the website. And, Barry, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. Thanks so much for Thank joining you. us. I've read this story about how these wild seed collectors are going around the world. So far you've collected 370 different varieties of seeds in order to deal with the lack of genetic diversity in our seed crops that makes them vulnerable to climate change. Can you explain that?
3: Yes. We collected. 371 species and subspecies of wild relatives. So this is a global effort to rescue endangered crop wild relatives by collecting them from the wild, conserving them and preparing them for use in pre-breeding. And this particular part of the project, it lasted for six years. But it is important to note that This is part of a bigger 10-year project that was funded by the Norwegian government, and it is aimed at adapting agriculture to to climate change. We call it, in short, the crop-wild-relative project.
2: Some of the stories that I saw collectors in Nepal traveling on elephants to ward off tigers and rhinos and they found a species of wild rice that's resistant to bacterial blight and a relative the sweet potato that's resistant to insect attacks and can grow in salty soils. In Ecuador, collectors wore long plastic boots with metal tips to protect them from snake bites while finding another high yield rice. These are extraordinary stories. Where do you find folks to do this?
3: So we all know climate change is really knocking at our our doors and we need to adapt our crops to climate change. And we know that the genetic diversity in the cultivated crops is already very narrow because the history of agriculture is long. Over the years, as farmers have cultivated out the domesticated crops from the wild, they lost a lot of genetic diversity. And now with climate change, they are not really able to cope with changes such as the diseases, the pests, and so on. So we need to bring in new diversity. And this diversity, the best way of bringing it in this new diversity is from the wild relatives, because the wild relatives are the richest source of untapped genetic diversity that we are going to need to confront climate change while related they have these novel traits that enable them to be able to cope in adverse conditions and we really believe that these novel traits can be brought in to the backgrounds of cultivated crops used to produce varieties that are more resilient and can stand the test of time
2: would a way to describe this be accurate if i were to say that basically the process of producing domesticated crops is selecting and it's what we've been doing for 10,000 years since the agricultural revolution, is selecting seed crops that are as ideally suited as possible to the balance between the current environmental conditions, the current soil conditions, the current local conditions with regard to pests and fungus and and insects and everything else that are the most likely to survive and then have high yields that are the most likely to survive through that. And because of that, we've settled on just a few dozen or a few hundred individual species that provide the bulk of our food, particularly at a local level. But as climate change is altering weather and bringing pests that these plants might not have have, uh, seen before, whether they be bacterial or fungal or or insect, bringing growing seasons that are different, bringing different levels of moisture in the soil or a lack of moisture in Mm -hmm. the soil, that our seed crops lack the genetic diversity to be able to adapt to these new climates, and that's why you all are out there in the wilds looking for edible plants or subsets of the of the main edible plants that we eat, like, you know, yams and rice and things, that do have that genetic diversity that can fit into these newly created, essentially, ecological niches that are caused by climate change? Is that an accurate way of defining it or ex- explaining it?
3: Perfect. Perfect. That would be an accurate way of defining it. If you would imagine wild relatives, for example, some of them, you can find them in really tough of environment. Like, for example, our partners have to collect from the seashores, which is really salty. You imagine that for such a species to be able to cope in that environment, it should have some traits that enable it to grow in that high concentration of salt. And so we are looking at the future. If we have climate change and our plants have to cope to high salty to salty soil, salt, for example, we might need traits from such a crop wild relative to introgress it into the background of a cultivated crop so that it can cope for example it's the same thing with heat tolerance and so on some of these crop wild relatives grow in very hot places and also very cold environments
2: we're talking with barry bonglum who is a technical specialist with the global crop diversity trust based out of Bonn, germany last question barry tell us about croptrust.org so the Global
3: Crop Diversity Trust is an international organization. We have a mandate to conserve crop diversity in the long term, still with the same initiative that we are going to need crop diversity in order to cope with climate change. The International Treaty for plant Genetic Resources is the main policy instrument for the Crop Trust.
2: Barry Bonglum, croptrust.org is the website. The Global Crop Diversity Trust is the organization. Twitter handle, at croptrust. Barry, thanks so much for dropping by today.
3: Okay, thank you so much.
2: Bye. My pleasure. Great talking with you. On the line with us is Dr. David Reichmuth, a senior engineer with the Union of Concerned Scientists in the Clean Vehicles Program. UCSUSA.org is their website. His Twitter handle is DR underscore Dave 510. And Dr. Reichmuth, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thanks for joining us. You wrote this great op-ed asking the question, are electric vehicles really better for the climate? Yes, here's why. Tell us the science behind this. Why is it better? A lot of our electricity is generated with coal and oil and natural gas. I live in Portland, Oregon. The electricity we get comes from the Bonneville Dam, and my car is mostly electric. I've got one of those plug-in hybrids, so I have bought, I think, one tank of gas in the last year because I can get 30 miles on a charge, which is pretty much anywhere in Portland and back home. But how is it generally speaking, across the United States, how is it that buying and driving an electric car is better for our environment than driving a gas-powered vehicle?
4: This is something that I get asked a lot is, is it really cleaner? Because we know that a purely electric vehicle has no tailpipe, so there's no CO2 emissions coming from the tailpipe. That's obvious. But we do know that we do get some of our power from coal, from natural gas. And so how does it work out when you consider all those factors? And so what we did is we looked at all of the emissions from using a gasoline vehicle. So that means, of course, burning the gasoline, but also looking at the emissions from trucking the gasoline to the service station, refining, extracting and transporting crude oil and bringing it to the refinery. And then we did that same analysis for the electric vehicle. So how much CO2 emissions come from mining and extracting natural gas and coal from burning it in power plants and delivering it to our homes because there's losses in that process as well. So if you do that apples to apples comparison of where the global warming emissions are coming from, it turns out the average EV in the US produces emissions equal to an 88 mile per gallon gasoline car. So much cleaner than the average gasoline car.
2: That's remarkable. The other thing that I didn't see in your article was the emissions associated with actually manufacturing a car. And obviously this would apply to a gas-powered car as well as an electric vehicle, an EV. The steel in the car has to be mined as iron ore and has to be refined and turned into steel and then fabricated into the car doors and frames and bodies and all the plastic in the car, the seat cushions and things, starts out as oil and making the engine block and all the parts and transporting them around the world. I'm wondering if anybody has ever done the math on how long you would have to own an electric vehicle that's, say, on average, three to four times more efficient in terms of not producing carbon dioxide, three or four times less polluting carbon-wise, how long you would have to own and drive that to pay off the cost, the carbon cost of manufacturing it to begin with?
4: Yeah, that's, that's also an excellent question. And we've looked at that a couple of years ago, we did a report entitled Cleaner Cars Cradle to Grave, where we looked at just what you were talking about, what are the emissions from making a gasoline car and what are the emissions from making an electric car? And what we found was that there are higher emissions from making an electric car than compared to a gasoline car, but mainly in the battery manufacturer. But that initial deficit or debt in emissions is quickly paid off as you use the electric vehicle because of these savings from global warming emissions as you drive on electricity versus gasoline. So it depends on where in the country you are driving your electric vehicle, how quickly you pay back that initial increase in emissions. It's, in general, about uh, um, one to two years. So as long as you don't buy an electric vehicle and then send it to a junkyard after two years, you should be coming out ahead on global warming emissions. But in general, it's about half, even when you include the manufacturing emissions, it's about half the total lifetime emissions for an electric vehicle compared to a comparable gasoline vehicle.
2: Back in 1996, when I was writing uh, Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, a book about the end of the era of oil and all that sort of thing, I became concerned about basically the carbon cost of manufacturing a car. And I had a Toyota car at the time. and It was a really good car. It was a good, solid car. And because of that research, I kept that car until it had over 100,000 miles on it. Then I gave it to my son, and he drove it for another 40,000 miles. You know, if you just change the oil frequently, the cars will last a long, long time if they're well built to begin with. Is there a point in time where you have kind of not just, you know, an electric vehicle beats a a gasoline vehicle in terms of the added or or pays back rather the added cost of manufacturing because all the stuff we've been talking about. But is there a point in time where carbon cost of simply manufacturing the vehicle starts to be diminishing to the point where it's not of great consequence any longer? How many miles should we try to keep our vehicles for? Or how many years should we try to keep? I guess you gauge it in miles. You know, should we hit for, shoot for 50,000, 100,000, 150,000? I mean, what's optimal or is there any math on that or any science on that?
4: A Couple of questions in there. One is sort of how can we make manufacturing of electric vehicles more efficient and, and produce less emissions? And I think that's something mm-hmm. we can and, and are doing. Part of that, as we learn more about battery chemistry and making cheaper, more efficient batteries, also as we clean up the grid and as the grid is getting cleaner over time, you know some of the emissions for battery manufacture come from electricity. so if we make the electric generation sector cleaner, not only do we make driving an electric vehicle cleaner, but we also making an electric vehicle here in the. US cleaner as well. on the question of replacing, a lot of times when we're getting rid of a car, a gasoline car, we're selling it into the used market. Oftentimes it's not being junked, so it's still being used. So it's not really causing extra emissions for the manufacturer. We're selling that vehicle. We do recommend, I mean, if you can right now switch to a more efficient electric vehicle, that makes sense for the environment. Even if you you have a, a relatively efficient gasoline vehicle, assuming you're selling that, and that's going to replace maybe a much older, dirtier gasoline vehicle down the line.
2: This is the first time that I've owned a car that runs as an electric car. I mean, this Toyota plug-in hybrid, it's amazing, the acceleration. It's a wonderful car to drive. And like I said, I've got 6,000 miles on the car. We've owned it almost two years. And I think I've bought, I'm pretty sure I have only bought one tank of gas in literally the last 12 months because great. it's just so easy to do. Dr. David Reichmuth, he's the senior engineer with the Clean Vehicles Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, the website UCSUSA.org. Thanks for having me. On the line with us today is Dr. Andrew Glickson. He is a climate scientist, research scientist with the Australian National University. Recently wrote a piece published by The Conversation. About Earth hurtling toward a catastrophe worse than the dinosaur extinction while we're all obsessing on the coronavirus. Dr. Glickson, welcome to our program. You note that you are an Earth and paleoclimate scientist, and you've spent years, uh, perhaps most of your life, looking at climate changes and mass extinction and the relationship between the two. And you mentioned the two most recent, the PETM and the one that probably most people are familiar with as the end of the dinosaurs. Can you give us a, a sense of what happened during those two extinctions, fifty-five and sixty-six million years ago?
5: Yeah. Okay. Well, KT the impact event, the uh, asteroid impact, has released a massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere over a period which has been estimated as about approximately ten thousand years. In the case of the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, but a bit longer than that, but uh, still. This causes out, in the first case, a major, major mass extinction of more than 60% of genera, living genera, have uh, perished. In the second instance, the PETM, the extinction was less abrupt, but still major, mostly in the oceans. And it comes to show composition of the atmosphere can do to the living world, to species, even though the rate now of the release of carbon dioxide is more than in order of the magnitude faster. The reason is the uh, rise in um, temperature consequence of um, carbon dioxide Release. This uh, immediately alerts us to the destructive consequences of the release of the change in transfer and the composition of the atmosphere at such an
2: extreme rate. So, in other words, we're pumping carbon dioxide or carbon equivalent products, methane and whatnot, into the atmosphere at a rate that is at least 10,000 times faster than the two previous extinctions? Do I have that right? 10,000 years ten versus chart- maybe a thousand?
5: 10,000 faster. 10,000 is Lengths of time, the number of years, it's at least an order of magnitude faster at the present time.
2: What does this mean for the larger animals and the apex predators like us humans?
5: You change the composition of the atmosphere, you change the temperature, you change most other parameters, including events such as fires and uh, storms and cyclones, and all the consequences of increasing temperatures in on land and in the oceans. If you increase it gradually, that's one thing, but if it's increased abruptly, many species cannot survive. You, you
2: mentioned in your article that one of the things that might have caused the extinction 55 million years ago, the PETM, could have been a methane burp. Are you talking about like the clathrate gun hypothesis where the oceans warmed up enough that the essentially frozen methane or methane frozen in crystal ice crystal lattices began to change phase, uh, you know, move from solid to gas and essentially came into the atmosphere? Or was that more like a melting of the permafrost and the tundra?
5: That it frozen
2: methane
5: is suggested on the basis of the isotopic composition of the carbon which has been released at the time. Now, the source of the methane is still a problem because a massive injection, even though it went over. 10,000 years, or more than 10,000 years, which in terms of the biosphere was very fast, but still not as fast as what's happening now. Compare it or when you look at it in perspective of what's happening now. We have many hundreds of billion tons of methane locked in in the permafrost in Siberia and Canada and generally in the Arctic, which is already being released at very high rates. We now have close to 2,000 parts per billion of methane, which is powerful greenhouse gas. It's more powerful than carbon dioxide by a large factor. We are releasing, the permafrost melting is releasing methane now at a rate, which is once again faster than what happened during the geological
2: events. What will the world look like for our children and grandchildren?
5: We cannot tell, of course, if we don't have a crystal ball, but many species cannot survive such an extreme change in the composition of the atmosphere. There will be some which can survive, but there will probably be very primitive forms of life to mammals and so on. They suffer badly. No one can tell exactly to what extent, but they
2: will suffer. My wife and I took a walk today along one of our country's major rivers and there was a long stretch with a lot of flowers that were blooming and fifty sixty years ago when I was a child those flowers would have been covered with bees and flies there would have been butterflies all over the place We saw two swallows in the 40-minute walk. We saw one bumblebee. Our program is broadcast nationwide. We get a lot of truck drivers calling in, and they're they're telling stories about how 20, 30, 40 years ago as they drove across lush areas like Michigan or the American South, they would have to stop every five or six hours to clean the bugs off their windshield. Now they can go a week without cleaning their windshield. We've heard about the insect holocaust. Are these all the early warning signs that we are approaching biological disasters?
5: That's a part of it. Uh, insects are affected. Uh, it was generally thought that insects or some insects are resistant to uh, climate change. But even here in Australia, or at least where I am, there are fewer insects, fewer flies, fewer mosquitoes. It's hard to say why the rise in temperature is affecting them to this extent. Because, of course, there are a lot of insects in tropical regions. But it seems, as a direct observation, that there are, like you say, changes. It's a worrying changes because, of course, insects have a major role in the biological world. Without insects or with fewer insects a lot of processes including the uh, flowering of plants and so on, uh,
2: hardly possible. It gives me the sense that we're living in a very, very difficult time on the edge of one. What is your advice to the world, to all of us? I mean, what, where do we go? What do we do? Well, if a civilization continues
5: to dig and burn and make hundreds of billions of tons of carbon from the Earth's crust, and release it into the atmosphere. Civilization is changing what I would call the lungs of the Earth. If we breathe, which we do, higher concentration of carbon dioxide, we get very sick. It's called hypercapnia. That's the ratio of carbon dioxide to oxygen. The same goes for the entire Earth. The changing composition of the atmosphere is affecting the biosphere whether it's plants or insects or animals, what do we do? If the virus is going to end up making millions of people sick, which it does, then such an extreme change in the climate that we are witnessing now would make billions of people sick. What do we do? We need to recognize that it is a crisis. It's a crisis in the living world and we need to elect governments which recognize it's a climate and do everything possible to ameliorate it the carbon dioxide concentrating in the atmosphere is already so high it's higher by more than 40 percent than it was in pre-industrial times that it's not only that we need to reduce emissions we need also to somehow drawdown of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, sequester carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, As it it's causing amplifying feedbacks from land and from ocean. If we can elect governments which understand it and act upon it, then we can try and reduce the damage. But at the moment, I don't feel particularly optimistic about it.
2: Dr. Andrew Glickson with Australian National University, thank you so much for being with us. Tom Hartman here with you, and on the line with us is Greg Pallas, the author of several New York Times bestsellers, including The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, and uh, you know him through his work with BBC Television, The Guardian, Democracy Now!, Rolling Stone, his new book, How Trump Stole 2020, and gregpallas.com is his website. You can tweet him at greg underscore Tell us about Deepwater Horizon.
6: Okay. Forget the idea that it's an accident. I investigated the Deepwater Horizon for Channel Four Television of Britain and the Big Arte um, system of Europe, and created. I did a whole feature-length film. What happened was 17 months before the Deepwater Horizon exploded, which they said had never happened. They never had a blowout before in an offshore deepwater drill. But 17 months before, they had almost BP had almost an identical blowout. In the Caspian Sea, same ocean rig, a trans-ocean deep water rig, they covered it up, okay? They covered it up, and then David Rainey, their vice president, nine months before the deepwater horizon blew out, he testified before Congress, Tom. The vice president of BP said that they've never had an unsafe situation at an offshore deep water drilling platform, never in 50 years. And it was just months earlier that they had a massive blowout in the Caspian, which was covered up. And by the way, they got help. And now I only know about this, by the way, Tom, because I got literally an insider at BP who was on the rig next to the one that blew out in the Caspian Sea. I flew to the Caspian Sea to confirm that this happened. I got arrested there, but then was kind of catch and release because I was a British reporter at the time. Yeah, they had this blog and BP covered up. So I not only had that insider, but another insider named Chelsea Manning, who obtained the cables from the U.S. State Department, in which the State Department knew about the blowout, kept it secret, did not tell the U.S. Interior Department, which they must do by law. And that's how the Deepwater Rising got its permit to drill they had just started drilling, and they only got it over objection of the Interior Department, which said, this is unsafe. They said, no, we've always been safe, and Congress forced them to allow that drilling. Eleven men were incinerated, 600 miles of coastline destroyed. That's the real story. And, you know, again, it's always been, you know, it's an act of nature. There were mistakes made at the drill. Uh, there, are there. A lot of, of course, all the safety equipment was missing. I have to tell you that part of my investigation went up to Alaska because, you know, I was the chief investigator on the Exxon Valdez cases before as a journalist uh, for fraud charges brought by the natives of Alaska. And BP was actually in charge, supposed to prevent that spill of the Exxon Valdez. Exxon, because it had its name on the boat, got all the blame, but BP was more to blame. They didn't have any cleanup equipment there, which they had promised to have, which they'd signed off and said they had, and then they pulled the same stunt in the Gulf. So from basically 20 years later, we had the deep water rise and they'd covered up the Caspian Sea blowout, of course. So you've got a multiple... You know, a recidivist environmental killer out there, British Petroleum. Mm-hmm. And as we remember this state 10 years ago, let's not forget they're still out there and nothing's improved. You know, there's a lot of oil spills, Tom, and it's actually pretty easy to stop them. You basically surround them with rubber and the sucker ships, or the containment ships, as they call them, but you have to have that equipment in place, and it costs literally billions for BP to live up to its agreements for the Gulf and its agreements for Alaska, and they've never lived up to those agreements. There was no reason why that when that, first of all, they should not ever have used the system that they used which is nitrogen-laced quick-dry cement that still is not prohibited. And that's how it blew out in the Caspian. That's how it blew out at the deep water Horizon. They're plugging these holes with this quick-dry cement. They put nitrogen in it, and, and on the deepwater wells, there's a lot of uh, pressure. So it's like kind of blowing into a milkshake. You're going to create bubbles, and that's your blowout. So we still have these massive problems. We still have oil companies that really couldn't care if they rig workers, get blown to kingdom come. It's just the end cheaper for them to pay people off and pay up to clean up than the literally billions of dollars they'd have to spend each year to keep drilling even close to safe. It's madness to be drilling deep water in the Gulf anyway, and that's still continuing. Yeah.
2: The great Greg dot com is the website. You can tweet him at greg underscore Palace. Greg, thanks for dropping by.
6: You're the best, Tom. Thank you. Bye.
2: Dana Nuccitelli, the environmental scientist, writer, and author of Climatology Versus Pseudoscience, a regular contributor to the Yale Center for Environmental Communication, The Guardian, and Skeptical Science. Plus, uh, Dana has a master's degree in physics from UC Davis. YaleClimateConnections.org is his website. Dana1981 is your Twitter handle. Dana, welcome to the program. I wanted to talk to you about Michael Moore's he didn't make it. Apparently, he's promoting or put his name on it or something. I was horrified when I watched this thing. For people who haven't watched it, don't know what we're talking about here, you want to give us a brief sketch and then let's get into it. Sure.
0: Thanks, Tom. Just a brief note that I'm just speaking on on my behalf and not on behalf of Yale or anybody else. So Basically, the premise of the film is that renewable energy like solar and wind power is no better than burning fossil fuels and it's all just an illusion. And so we should just keep going with the status quo and instead work on other, I mean, they don't really propose any other solutions, but they kind of imply that some sort of end to growth is the solution we should be aiming for rather than shifting to cleaner technologies. That's the basic summary of the film.
2: Okay, and you can build a strong argument that growth and the way that we grow and even population growth are all mitigating factors in this. And the movie does point out basically the scam of, you know, wood chip biomass. But outside of that, it seems like the basic message is, had these guys been making a movie about Thomas Edison back in the 1890s, they'd be saying, you know, his light bulb, uh, it looks kind of nice, but it only burns for about 25 minutes. And, uh, you know, we should just go back to candles. And in fact, many of the statistics are way out of date. What is your specific critique of this documentary?
0: Oh, there, there are a lot of very misleading scenes in there, but a lot of the scenes that look at clean technologies like solar panels and wind turbines, they were filmed kind of around the year 2010 when and these technologies have improved so fast and become so much cheaper and more efficient that if you're only looking at the technology from a decade ago, it's completely misrepresentative of what it can do today like solar panels have become something like 70 80 percent cheaper over the past decade which is not mentioned anywhere in the film they just do this a couple scenes looking at solar panels that are over a decade old and it gives the impression that these are outdated inefficient technologies that are it's just it's, it's sort of like looking at cell phones and just looking at flip phones and saying well flip phones are terrible and so cell phones are just not worthwhile when you know, technology improves really fast. So you have to keep updating it. If you're gonna release a film in 2020, it has to represent the state of the technology in 2020, not in 2010. So that's one problem. At one point, they make the claim that because fossil fuels are required to kind of manufacture and install clean technologies, that it's no better than just continuing to burn fossil fuels in power plants. It's an absurdly wrong claim because scientists do these things called life cycle assessments that look at the carbon footprint associated with these things, manufacturing, installation, lifelong operation, and decommissioning of all kinds of power plants. And these life cycle assessments show that renewable technologies like wind and solar have a much, much, much smaller overall lifetime carbon footprint than coal and natural gas. Is something like 20 times smaller. Like hmm. The film doesn't do any kind of these like quantitative assessments. It doesn't compare the numbers. It just says, well, because the carbon footprint of solar and wind isn't zero, then it's no better than a coal burning power plant, which is completely ridiculous. And just like that most misleading claim in the entire film. is just flat out, insanely
2: false. It does go after a couple of sacred cows in the Green Movement, specifically Al Gore and Bill McKibben, and essentially accuses them of being less than honest or being on the take. And specifically with regard to biomass, both of them have loudly, publicly reversed or walked away from any position on biomass. And in every other regard, it seems like these are just like really great people who are doing good work. After the film came out and, and they walked back those positions, but, you know, then continue doing what they're doing, which I salute. My understanding is that Michael Moore pulled this film out of distribution, but then it just went over to YouTube, which is where, what, some 5 million people have seen it now. What's the story here with this thing? How did this film get made? Why is Michael Moore's name on it?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, Jeff Gibbs was the director, but Michael Moore was the producer on it. So I think Jeff Gibbs did most of the work and kind of brought Michael Moore on board with it. There's a, a group called Films for Action that had originally distributed it, and then they pulled it, and then they decided that they didn't want to get the kind of backlash and to draw more attention to it by pulling it, so they put it back on to their distribution website. But it's primarily been viewed on YouTube. I think it's been viewed more than 7 million times on YouTube. It hasn't been picked up by very many other distributors for probably because of mm-hmm. the very misleading nature of it. Um, and yeah, I mean, the attacks, especially on Bill McKevin, are, are pretty ridiculous because Bill McKevin has spent basically his entire career trying to slow climate change. And it, it paints him as, as this villain who's trying to like, burn entire forests for energy or something like that. In the past, it's in some cases, supported using wood-burning facilities for small energy production. In its defense, it's a very complicated issue because there are ways to burn wood sustainably. If you're using waste wood, wood that's harvested that's not suitable for other uses, then it can't be done sustainably. It's just that, in practice, it hasn't been done sustainably, and that's why more groups and individuals have kind of come out against burning wood for energy just because in practice it hasn't been done very sustainably and so that's why since somewhere around 2016 Bill McKibben has very strongly been against burning wood for fuel and again this film came out in 2020 and for the last four years he's been very strong against it and the film at no point mentioned that it portrayed him as this wood-burning villain he's trying to clear-cut forests and burn them for energy, which is just not at all Yeah, uh,
2: and it's, it's particularly weird given, you know, that the go-to message of the film is cut growth, cut population, and Bill McKibben's first book was titled Just One. It was a plea to only have one child.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, his—I mean, exactly. His entire career has been trying to find the best possible solution. At one point, you know, in the past, it seemed like burning wood, if done sustainably, could be a viable solution, at least on small scales. And you know, things change again. Technologies change, and practices change, and people change their opinions accordingly. And so, I don't know why they decided to make him out as a villain in the film. And I mean, there's a very same a similar story for Al Gore, who again, for his career, is trying to do what he could to solve the climate crisis and nobody's perfect but they're all doing their best and to portray them as villains like on the same footing as the Koch brothers or something like that is just it's, it's really ridiculous
2: yeah, it's really unfortunate. And, you know, I lived in Vermont for 10 years, and we, we heated with wood. I mean, you know, a lot of people do. Right. Uh, but, you know, yeah, we also had some acreage, and, and you know, we cut our own wood, and I littered every... I mean, it, that's a whole different thing than than the whole power plant thing. It's fascinating, and I, I wanted to get the message out there that if you've seen this movie, you're only getting, you know, a fraction of the story, and, and you need to get the rest of the story. Dana Nudicelli, uh, environmental scientist, writer, author of Climatology versus Pseudoscience, regular contributor to uh, all kinds of sites, including the Guardian, Yale Climate Connections.org. Thank you, Dana. Thanks for dropping by today. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hartman with two N's, netsuite.com slash hartman, that's netsuite.com slash hartman. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So the Northern Russian Siberian town of Verkhoyansk, which is uh, normally in the dead of summer, hits an average high temperature of around 68 degrees, is over 100 degrees, or at least it was yesterday. I'm not sure about today. This is very troubling, or at least it seems to be on the surface. Let's do a reality check here with Dr. Michael Mann, the distinguished professor of meteorology the director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State University, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, author of several books, including most recently The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics and Driving Us Crazy. He's also the recipient of the Tyler Prize. His website, Michael Mann, with two N's at the end, net. And you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann, M-A-N-N.
7: This is just the latest development that really drives home the fact that we are dealing with what can reasonably be described as a planetary emergency. We are seeing new thresholds of heat here in the United States. Now in the Arctic, the Arctic is warming about twice the rate of the rest of the planet. And that has to do with some of the the factors that are specific to that region. There's a lot of ice. And when you melt that ice away and you expose the ocean surface or the ground, it can heat up much more rapidly. And so we see that so-called Arctic amplification of warming at work. In fact, the Arctic has warmed the better part of a degree Fahrenheit over the past century, as much as the rest of the planet has warmed over several decades, just in one decade. That's how fast the planet is warming, and so we expect to see these new thresholds breached. And this is a significant one, 100 degrees, triple digits, Fahrenheit temperatures in the Arctic, north of the Arctic Circle, is simply consistent with the picture that is emerging of a planet that's warming up and a climate that is changing in adverse ways as we continue to pump carbon pollution into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels.
2: We have been warned by the uh, IPCC that, in fact, it was, what, two, three years ago that they said you've got 10 years to get this thing under control. Does this you know, revelation of this rapid warming in the Arctic mean that their timeline was too conservative that the crisis is even closer to us than we thought or does this validate their assertion and and how is the world responding to this so no, this is more or less consistent with the predictions when you warm the planet even by a degree
7: you increase the likelihood of those extreme heat events like the ones we're seeing in the arctic by tenfold or a hundredfold it just has to do with the fact that the extreme events become even more extreme, even with a modest amount of warming. And, of course, we'll see much more warming if we continue on this course. So the fact that what is happening, uh, what is unfolding, is consistent with the model predictions is cause enough for concern. And it indicates that, in fact, we don't have much time. If we are to limit warming below truly catastrophic levels, you mentioned a decade. It was the 12-year sort of number that was quoted quite a bit a couple years years. ago. that We had 12 years yeah. And so it's, it's about two years later. So that's about 10 years. And, and what that number really means is that we have about a decade to bring down those carbon emissions dramatically by a factor of two, even within the next decade, if we're to avert warming the planet by more than about two degrees, the better part of four degrees Fahrenheit, where we really start to see the worst impacts play out. So we don't have much time. The COVID-19 crisis Ironically, the shutdown and the decrease in air travel and transportation, that led only to a modest decrease in carbon emissions. It looks like maybe only about four percent or no more than seven percent this year, even with that massive shutdown, that massive lockdown. And that isn't even enough. If we're to bring those carbon emissions down by a factor of two in the next decade, We've got to bring them down by more than 10% every year. And so that shows that this is still an uphill battle. Simply changing individual behavior, traveling less, those sorts of changes in behavior and individual actions aren't enough. We need systemic changes, structural changes in our economy, policies that incentivize a massive and rapid shift away from fossil fuel burning. For example... The Green New Deal, I actually think it doesn't quite Mm -hmm. go far enough. The Green New Deal contains incentives for renewable energy, which is a critical part of the solution. I also think we actually need to put a price on carbon. Polluters need to pay when they dump their pollution into the atmosphere. Right now, they do that at no cost. As my good friend Bill Kibben has said, we've given the fossil fuel industry the greatest subsidy of all time. They can dump their waste into our atmosphere at no cost, and that has to change. And so, reason to believe that if we see this massive blue wave that is shaping up right now, and we see new leadership in Washington, D.C., we can hit the ground running. We're making some progress already, even under Trump. There's enough happening at the state level and what companies are doing, what individuals are doing, that we're making some progress. What we need to do is accelerate that progress. And, you know, if we get a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president maybe even working together with some moderate conservatives who are, you know, offended by what their party has become, I think there's a real opportunity for dramatic action here within the next year.
2: One of the things that we're seeing in governments around the world is the shift to the authoritarian right. You know, we're seeing it right here at home with Donald Trump in the White House, and hopefully it'll be a temporary one, but more permanent ones have happened in Turkey, in the Philippines, in India now with Mr. Modi, in Hungary with Orban, Poland with Duda, in Jair Bolsonaro, in Brazil. And one of the through lines for all of these seems to be climate change denial. Now, you wrote a book about climate change denial and its relationship to politics and to billionaires and all this kind of stuff. You know, I look at this scenario and I'm just like flummoxed. Why do the world's billionaires want to fund right-wing governments to deny climate science?
7: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a sad commentary on our state of affairs, Tom, and, and you speak to a much larger problem. Climate change denial and the lack of action on climate is really a symptom of a much larger problem that we have right now, with authoritarian regimes taking hold around the world. And one commonality here is fossil fuels. Most of these countries we're talking about are essentially petrostates. Their governmental policies are dictated by powerful fossil fuel interests who favored their own short-term financial interest over the greater good of, of the people that these governments are supposed to represent.
2: Has this level of economic shutdown, you know, we were warned a couple, two, three years ago that we had 10 years, the IPCC said, you guys don't get your emissions down to this level within 10 years. All hell is going to break loose. I'm wondering, you know, I I take a walk now. The sky is clear. I can see Mount Hood down, you know, 100 miles away as if it was next door. There are literally no jet trails in the sky. We live near an airport. Maybe one one plane takes off an hour. Are we there yet? I mean, has the coronavirus shut down world activity? Has it taken us to 100% of the IPCC's goal for 2020, or are we only 50%? I mean, where and what does this tell us about what we need to do going forward to achieve those goals?
7: Yeah, all great questions. And the reality is somewhat sobering. What feels like a shutdown of our entire economy and certainly a, a very substantial decrease in transportation and carbon emissions generated from transportation, uh, what seems like life-changing changes in lifestyle have only gotten us about maybe 6 to 8% reduction in carbon emissions. And we need to bring those carbon emissions down by 10% every year for the next decade if we're going to avoid crossing that threshold of uh, dangerous planetary warming.
2: So it sounds to me like the essence of what you're saying, Dr. Mann, is that we have used a relatively blunt instrument, this brute force thing of everybody just stay home for three months now to bend the curve down by 6%. But we've got to yeah. hit 10%. The Republicans and the fossil fuel industry are going to say, okay, you've got the you know a, another Great Depression as a result of just 6%, and you want more? And your response right. sounds to me like what you're saying is, yes, we can get a larger carbon emission reduction without the Great Depression by doing it smart exactly instead right. of doing it with a sledgehammer.
7: That's exactly right, Tom. In fact, it's the opposite, right, of what, of what the talking points of the, the critics would hold. Actually, as we know, moving renewable energy generates all sorts of new jobs. Uh, it's good for the economy, and obviously it's much better for the planet. So it's win-win. There's no reason not to do it. The only obstacle right now is, as I alluded to, the fact that we have you know, fossil fuel interests who are currently essentially running our government under the Trump administration. We need to replace that government. We have an election coming up in months. We need to vote in politicians who will act on this problem before it's too late, before we truly do destroy the livability of this planet for future generations
2: yeah well given that a coal lobbyist is running the environmental protection agency and an oil lobbyist is running yep. the interior department i would say we're we're a full capture here yeah. another story that has been haunting me it's, it's popped up all over the place It started the science magazines and it's migrated into the popular press is that the uh, the the so-called wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees celsius you know, wet bulb is where basically it's, it's so hot and the humidity is so high that humans cannot evaporate perspiration enough to cool themselves down. It's the old, you know, it doesn't feel hot in Arizona because the air is so dry, but, you know, even 10 degrees, you know, even something in the 90s rather than in the hundreds, if you're surrounded by 80 percent humidity, will kill you. That this is going to be the new normal for much of the uh, equatorial regions of the planet and could endanger literally billions of humans.
7: The fact is a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. So in general, uh, you get more humid conditions in places like the tropics, and it gets hotter. So it gets hotter and more humid, and we all know from our own experiences that it's those very hot, very humid summer days that really do a number on us, that make it very difficult to be outside. As you allude to, that becomes the new normal. Think of the hottest, most humid summer day you've ever experienced. We'll simply call that summer by mid-century. That will be the typical conditions that we expect to see in the summer, here even in the mid-latitudes, if we continue on the path that we're on. And there are regions, a large swath in the tropics, where that combination of heat and humidity will literally be deadly. It will be too hot for human beings. And so what we're talking about, as we all know... Less land for us because the tropics become unlivable, because our coastlines become flooded. Some of our largest coastal regions become flooded because of sea level rise. So there's less land, there's less fresh water, there's less food, and there's 7.8 billion and growing people on this planet. That's a prescription for a disaster if we don't do something now.
2: And by doing something, I'm assuming you're talking about getting carbon emissions under control.
7: Yeah, I'm talking about voting Donald Trump out of office, of course. But no, absolutely. (laughs) That's the first step. But what we need, uh, indeed, is policies at the highest level. We need the U.S., to actually become a leader again when it comes to the, the worldwide efforts to avert catastrophic climate change. And we had that leadership under Barack Obama. Sure, we can fault certain policies here or there, but we were on the right track. And of course, under Trump, we've headed off in the wrong direction now.
2: Dr. Michael Mann, his uh, most recent book, The Madhouse Effect, is website, michaelmann.net, M-A-N-N.net. And you can tweet him at Michael Mann. Dr. Mann, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. It's always great talking. Thank right. you. You too, Tom. Thanks. So some of you may recall back years ago, I had a a biologist on this program. His name was Stuart Pym, a well-known, well-celebrated biologist, who was explaining to us how bears pooping in the woods were cycling salmon into the forests and keeping the forests healthy. What Stewart explained was that there were parts of the Pacific Northwest where the forests were not healthy. When they took the dam out, the salmon were coming upriver, and the bears were catching them out of the water and walking back into the woods and eating them. And then the bear poop was fertilizing the forest with that iodine, and it was bringing these forests back to life. Well, we're seeing the same thing now happening in the Amazon, Tapirus terrestris, also known as tapirs, T-A-P-I-Rs. They have a long snout and they're about the size of a dog, kind of pig-like, more or less. Turns out that tapirs are the only animals in the forest that can successfully eat very large seeds that jungle trees produce and then transport those seeds miles away and poop them out intact so that those trees are moving, are spreading, are, are, are being spread around. And one of the things that is happening now as a consequence of deforestation in the Amazon, and this is the critical piece, how everything fits together. It's all these small pieces. There's increasing evidence that the tapers are being killed off in part because of deforestation. The forests can no longer maintain their populations. And as the tapers are killed off, the ability of the jungle trees, these giant trees in the jungles, to regrow forests after they've burned and things are diminishing. This is how it all happens. It's like we think that these complex systems are ultimately not complex, that they're somehow very, very simple systems. They're not. Most people would not think, oh, gee, you know, if If they cut out my stomach, or if they took out my liver, or if they removed my brain, I could still be just fine, right? Some some essential organ. And yet, we look at complex ecosystems and don't realize that they have all these complex and absolutely required pieces to them too. It's a lesson that you would think would be self-evident, but apparently is not. It's really unfortunate. We're all familiar with the crisis of plastic bottles and disposable plastic and plastic bags getting into our oceans and plastic living forever in our landfills. But plastic rain? This is extraordinary. On the line with us is biogeochemist and assistant professor at Utah State University, Janice Brainy. Dr. Brainey is the lead author on the new paper about plastic rain. Her website is janicebrahney.weebly.com, and her uh, Twitter handle is j b r a Dr. Brainy, welcome to the program. Tell us about this plastic rain.
1: We actually set out to try to understand how dust might be influencing remote ecosystems but instead what we found was a whole lot of plastic coming out of the sky both with rain and under dry conditions
2: so this is a presumably microscopic plastic the little tiny particles that have been worn by weather over the years from the giant piles of plastic we've got around or is this something from industrial processes like manufacturing
1: So a little bit of both. Most of what we saw were fragments of clothing. So we saw a lot of fibers that were polyester or nylon or typically associated with clothing. But we also saw a lot of fragments of plastic that we couldn't identify what their original source was, but very brightly colored primary plastics. So plastics that were in their original form. So we saw a lot of brightly colored microbeads which are most likely coming from paint.
2: If rain fell on your hand and you looked carefully at it, you still wouldn't see these, right? I mean, we're talking so small, you'd have to look at a microscope?
1: Right, they're very, very small. So about the width of a human hair or much, much smaller.
2: Wow, that's remarkable. What are the biological consequences of this? I saw from the paper, 1,000 tons a year of microplastics raining out of the sky worldwide. What does that do to the plants, and what does that do to the animals, and what does that do to us ultimately? I mean, to what extent is this in our water supply as well?
1: Yeah, those are all great questions that we don't have a lot of answers to. We do know that we we can breathe in these particles, and they can get lodged in our lung tissue, and that likely doesn't have any benefits to us. Um, There has been a little bit of work showing that it does lead to inflammatory responses and that it could lead to more serious health consequences just like any other aerosol in the atmosphere, but we don't really know too much more than that. With respect to animals and plants, there's been a lot more work done in the marine environment where they've shown that marine organisms accidentally consume plastics and that has a lot of detrimental consequences to maybe physically it could cause blockages in their intestinal tract or could lead to other kinds of negative effects from transferring toxins, for example. There haven't been very many studies in terrestrial environments on terrestrial insects, and there's been a number of studies on soils because we often add plastics to soils as mulch to change some of their physical properties like increasing the, the temperature and retaining soil moisture. But some studies have started to show that these short-term benefits are offset by long-term negative consequences to soil health. So there has been some suggestion that it can change how nutrients are recycled in the soil as well as how well plants
2: grow. Wow, and not just humans. I, I assume probably most complex animals have at least two organs that are primarily, principal purposes, filtration and metabolism of things that we've ingested, the liver and the kidneys. It seems like these would be places where microplastic might be particularly problematic. Is this just such a brand new field that we don't know what's going on or is there some evidence that there's a concern here?
1: I think we should definitely be concerned. I I can't imagine that breathing in plastic or ingesting plastic is good for us in any way. I'm not a human biologist, so I don't understand the Mm. consequences to humans. There just isn't a lot of work done on this yet, I think, because we're only just starting to realize the scale of the problem. It's only been in the last year that we started to see um, more and more evidence of a lot of plastics in our atmosphere and, and where they might be coming from.
2: We're talking with biogeochemist Professor Janice Braney, assistant professor at Utah State University, lead author on this new paper about plastic rain. Dr. Brany, what, what should we do about this? Where do we begin, assuming that this is not a good thing? And also, I, assuming, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that probably a lot of this plastic that's fallen, you know, raining out of the sky for the time it would take for these particles to get ground down this small if they started out as pieces of clothing and things, this plastic might be 10, 20, 30, 50 years old?
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot of the plastics that we're seeing, we assume, are quite old. And one of the ways that we decided that was because we were able to show that some of the plastics are coming from really, really far away. We were only able to show that small proportion of the plastics were coming from nearby cities. So what that tells us is that a lot of what we're seeing is this recycling of plastic around the surface of the earth. And so much of it is pretty old.
2: So does this mean that the areas that we think of as pristine, whether it's the, you know, the Himalayas, uh, you know, Mount Everest, or the Amazonian rainforest, the Amazon basin, that they're not really so pristine, that already they're just laced with plastics as a result of just the rain coming to them and through them?
1: That's right. Yeah, the atmosphere is very effective at distributing all kinds of contaminants to really remote locations. And now we know it's also um, plastic that is just about everywhere.
2: There's technology in Germany that actually we've showed it in a movie recently, to extract carbon from the atmosphere. Is is this the sort of thing where we should be talking about extracting this stuff out of the environment, or is it just the only response that, appropriate response that we can do is to stop it from going into the environment?
1: I think stopping from going, it going into the environment, I think that the scale of large-scale atmospheric filtration might not be very efficient. And I hope that what, by showing what the ultimate sources are of the plastics in the environment, that could help lead to technologies that might limit emissions to the atmosphere or into the environment, as well as to develop better waste management strategies.
2: It's just remarkable research you're doing, uh, Dr. Braining. Thank you so much for, for doing this research and for dropping by and talking with us about it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, professor Janice Brainy, a biogeochemist, and assistant professor at Utah State University. Her website is Janice, B-R-A-H-N-E-Y, dot Weedley, W-E-E-B-L-Y, dot com, for more information. And you can tweet her at J-L Brainy, B-R-A-H-N-E-Y. You've been listening to
6: Tom Hartman.